how can we as indigenous women travel to another community and how can we respectfully visit there and not inflict colonialism upon the indigenous people of that land and what does it look like to be a respectful and responsible traveler when we're traveling to these other spaces. I think about that anywhere that I go. And you know, now in the so-called United States, when I travel, I don't think of these as states. I think of my travel as like more traveling through territories. I'm like, oh, I wonder whose territory I'm on right now. Hey everyone, I'm Kelly Edwards and you're listening to Let's Go Together. Jolie Valera is a citizen of the Nomu and Yokut Nations and founder of the organization Indigenous Women Hike. Jolie joins us to discuss the joys of navigating Native landscapes and her mission to restore truth in American history. Jolie, I'm actually really excited to speak to you today. I follow you on Instagram. I love how vocal you are, how passionate you are, how unrelenting you are about your heritage in your community. So for those of you who don't know Jolie, I'd love for you to uh, give us a little bit of background on who you are. All right. I'm so happy to be here and to meet you. And I like to, when I'm getting to know somebody or when I'm introducing myself, I always like to introduce myself in my language. And so Manahu Inaniane Jolie Varela, Numunu Payahunaru Yesh Chuli River Nukimaru, Ibia. Tony Spoonhunter, Ima'a, Anita Spoonhunter, Saunamati <laughs> New. So what I just said was, hello, my name is Jolie Varela. I come from the place of flowing water and Tuli River. My mother is Tony Spoonhunter and my grandmother is Anita Spoonhunter. And it feels good to be here. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for giving that introduction. I really, really enjoyed hearing that. Is there a reason why you introduced your mother and your grandmother? Is there a part of the culture that is that the way you introduce your family? Well, I come from a maternal community and women are very important in my culture. And my mother and my relationship with my grandmother and my mother is also very important to me. So I always like to start off that way by letting people know who the women are who are important to me in my life. I love that. I really, really do. So what I love to start off with is when do you first remember feeling pride for being an Indigenous person? I honestly don't think that that came until later in my life as a young child, you know, I, I grew up in poverty and I love my mother so much. But when I was younger, she had addiction problems like so many of our parents have growing up on the reservation. And so I didn't really know to be proud of it until I was older. Like I always understood that I am indigenous and that I'm native and that I'm Paiute, but I was never really taught to be proud of it until I was older. And I think that that has a lot to do with growing up in poverty and kind of just growing up with this, you know, I thought all of all of the bad things about being Native is what being Native was. But since I am older and I am learning more about my culture and my identity as an Indigenous woman, 
and learning about the land that we come from and also learning about colonialism and what it's done to our communities and realizing that we have a really rich and wonderful culture beyond poverty and beyond addiction and beyond all of these things that kind of plague Indian country. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you've just shared this because I uh, have a Native American friend who also shared similar sentiments, meaning it seems like the pride came later in life because of some of the turmoil that they grew up with within the community and within their own family. And so it's it's a real thing. It's very prevalent. And uh, thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that with us. There's something I really wanted to talk about with you. I love the great outdoors. And so I always find myself connecting with nature. But I found this quote from you. And I really want to know what you meant by it. You said, public lands were not created for all people. What do you mean by that? Well, when public lands were created, indigenous people were removed from those spaces and murdered to designate those lands as public. And at the time when they began the creation and designations of public lands, Native people couldn't even vote. Uh You know, we were being relocated to reservations. And so we, we weren't thought of in the creation of public lands, which tells me that public lands were created for the people who were holding power at that time. Often, to find heroes outside of history books, you have to do some digging. When we come back, I talk to Jolie about the many present-day Indigenous heroes you don't know and why the term explorer can be problematic. We're back. Before the break, Jolie Varela, the founder of Indigenous Women Hike, explained the devastation of colonialism and its impact on the Indigenous community. Some of the men at the forefront are now regarded in this country as heroes and pioneers. I wanted to find out from Jolie who her personal Indigenous heroes are and how to unlearn some of the whitewash history we've been taught in schools. I also have noticed that you're like, please retire these John Muir quotes, right? We don't need to hear those because I and my people have traversed this land forever prior to the white man coming. And it seems as if, and and I I definitely agree with you, that there has been a takeover of something that was never theirs to begin with and then to claim it as if they discovered it. It's very bothersome. And that's just the truth. And I know that you've, you know, you've shared this and, and your frustration in that. And you said, look into your old conservation heroes and research how public lands were created. You said, I know some heroes that are within the black, brown and indigenous land defenders and water protectors who are still living that you can look up to. Who are some of these people that we should know or get to know? Well, there are so many indigenous people that I know. There are black indigenous people. There are black conservationists. There are, again, our indigenous land defenders and water protectors. And these are just your, I I don't even want to call them normal 
people, you know, because they are defending our lands. And it's not like all of them are influencers or I think that we can look up to our neighbors and each other when it comes to land preservation. But some of the people that I look up to via, you know, Instagram are like Melanin Muskoki, who is a Black Indigenous woman who posts a lot of really wonderful things. And then there are just so many Indigenous land defenders. There's also Pinar, who is Indigenous to so-called South America. They're really wonderful, and they run a page called Queer Nature. And there's Dallas Goldtooth uh, with the Indigenous Environmental Network. There's my sister and good friend, Autumn Harry, who's Numu from Kuyuipat or Pyramid Lake. And there's her mother and there's her father. And there are so many people doing good things to protect the land. I think that we need to kind of retire these old white conservationists who, when you look into that history, John Muir said some pretty terrible things. And the way that he referred to my people and the way that he also talked about Black people mm-hmm. is ridiculous. And there's no reason that we need to be glorifying people like him or like LeConte. And people really need to be studying these people to understand why you know, they are problematic and why LeConte doesn't deserve the name of a ranger station in my home mountains. Right. I, John Muir doesn't deserve the name of the John Muir Trail. Right. Because he traveled trails that were already there from my people thousands of years ago. I've been able to walk this whole trail and I've seen abalone. I've seen chipped obsidian. I've seen so much evidence of my ancestors along this trail. And it's really sad to think of, you know, that people really believe that John Muir created these trails. And that's just not the truth. So we need to look into our old conservationist heroes and we need to retire them and we need to replace them with with Black brown indigenous people that are living now protecting these earth and have a lot of really important things to say. Absolutely. Amen to that. I'm seriously, I'm, I'm over here with like the biggest smile listening to you. You have to think about the land that you're exploring and what you're doing when you're on that land. And if it's a positive contribution or or negative to the people who inhabit the land. And so I consider myself an explorer, but first and foremost, anytime I go into a place that is not my own home, the first thing I want to do is respect the culture and the rules and the land and the people. So it's like the term explorer is, the more I look at it, the more it's like it needs to be respected in a way that the people are actually respecting what they are exploring. Because just coming over and trying to take over and throw your name on it, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I have a, a feeling toward the word explorer or the word pioneer. And these are kind of words that I've taken out of my vocabulary. Uh-huh. Because to me, they just have such a colonial feel behind them. And, you know, when we we're talking about exploring spaces and we're talking about like pioneering and these things. 
I think that even that can be a form of erasure language. And, you know, what erasure language is, is when we talk about things or people in the past tense, because that happens a lot with indigenous people. I have even done it before is, is catching yourself talking about indigenous people in the past tense, hmm. when we are still very much living and here today and still traveling and in connection with our homelands. And when I think of some of the words that contribute to erasure, our erasure language, I think about explore when it's used in the sense of like going out on, on the land. It sounds very colonial to me. So that's one of the things that I've tried to do to change my language. So I, myself and other Numu women visited Tawantan Suyu or so-called Peru. The whole thought behind this, this journey that we were going on was to enlist the services of people and women who are indigenous to that area. And how can we as indigenous women travel to another community? And how can we respectfully visit there and not inflict colonialism upon the indigenous people of that land? And what does it look like to be a respectful and responsible traveler or relative when we're traveling to these other spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think about that anywhere that I go. And, you know, now in the so-called United States, when I travel, I don't think of these as states. I think of my travel as like more traveling through territories, yeah. going through a space. I'm like, oh, I wonder whose territory I'm on right now. Oh, I'm in the Navajo Nation or I'm in Utah. So part of this is still... Paiute territory, but who else is from this land? So I will Google it and see indigenous people of, and that's kind of how my thinking has changed since I, I started Indigenous Women Hype, is I think more in territories. And as we're traveling, I'm forever thinking like, how do I respect and honor the people, the original people of the land that I'm traveling on? Absolutely. And I've noticed, I don't want to say a trend, but I've noticed lately within social media, especially because I do a lot of activities in the great outdoors, that a lot of influencers and journalists are saying ancestral land and then naming the place. And I think that's really, really incredible. And it's very necessary because when you think about what we're taught in schools and everything like that, you never hear about the native names or the original names of places. You you are force-fed a history that leaves out thousands of years prior to. What is your earliest memory of connecting with nature? You know, I have been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm finding myself in the outdoor industry. And that feels so strange to me since creating Indigenous Women Hike, because I started Indigenous Women Hike as a way for myself and other Numu women to connect to our ancestral homelands and to say that we're still here and that we're still connecting with our lands and that it's also the land is like medicine to us. And so I have been thinking a lot about this and I never really considered myself as somebody who was outdoorsy. I didn't think I was before. And then the more and more I think about it, I think, well, wait a minute, what really is 
like outdoorsy? Do you have to throw on a Patagonia jacket and go hiking in a national park? <laughs> Is that what that means? And it's like, no, that's not, you know, I remember growing up on the reservation in Bishop and I was probably like 10 or 11 and I would grab my fishing pole and I would grab my grasshoppers and I had a little radio and I would cross two barbed wire fences through a field and there was a swimming hole there and I would sit there and I'd turn my radio on and I'd fish. Wow. And that's being outdoors too. And that's connecting with the land too. And, you know, my cousins and I riding bikes down the res going to a swimming hole out at the gorge, you know, so I never thought of myself outdoorsy and I thought of it as being kind of a new thing. But the more that I look back on my childhood, I realized that I have always been connected in this way and out on the land, but it was just so natural the way that we did it, that it didn't seem to me like your typical vision of what somebody who is outdoorsy looks like. It's so funny that you say this because I did a similar thing as a child, which is take a fishing pole and go fishing. However, I was in Chicago and in San Bernardino with a stick, a string and a paper clip fishing in the gutter, pretending that I was doing what you were doing in real life. And so I knew from an early age that I loved being outdoors. And that was my way being a city girl trying to connect with nature. And here you are doing it in real life. And so it's just funny to hear two, I can just see two little girls doing the same thing. And one is literally immersed in nature. And the other one is like, is that a leaf? Or what is that that I just hooked on my fake fishing pole? <laughs> That's wonderful. And also to get people thinking too, it's like, what makes my experience any more than your experience as a child? And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, taking a walk in a city park or, you know, going with your little stick and your string and your, your paper clip in wherever you were isn't any less sacred than what we're doing here, right? Because all of this land is sacred, whether it's a city park or a national park. Both Jolie and I have a long history of being fascinated by nature, but I wanted to find out the events that led up to her creating Indigenous Women Hike and both the challenges and joys she experiences gathering women in her community together for these spiritual outdoor excursions. What led you to officially starting the organization Indigenous Women Hike? So I, I mean, I have, I've been on a healing journey my whole life. And when I say that th there's a lot of traumas that I am currently healing from, and I will be healing from for the rest of my life. There's, um, you know, sexual abuse, rape, and a lot of things and a lot of things that are really specific to our indigenous community uh, by way of historical traumas and all of these things that have become a cycle in our communities that we are starting to change and starting to heal from. And, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was severely depressed and all I could really do was go out on the land. I would wake up early in the morning. I would put on my hiking shoes, grab my water, and I would go on like a 10 mile hike. And it was really all I could do to, to feel good 
to keep myself going. And I would come home just in time to get ready to go for work and do the dinner shift at the restaurant. And that's really what kept me going was going on this hike and taking my body out on the land. But on those hikes, I would see things like grinding stones and I would find chipped obsidian and it would kind of just instill this pride in me and it would make me feel good. And so that was my experience of hiking because I didn't start hiking until my late 20s. Mm -hmm. You know, once I started, it was like I was using that to combat my depression. And I kind of found myself at Standing Rock. And I was there for three months with my relatives there, standing against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And it was there where it's like, we have these water issues going on where I'm from, Payahunaru, which means the place of flowing water, but people know it as the Owens Valley. And for over 100 years, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power has been stealing water from Payahunaru. Wow. I'm sorry. I live in LA. I pay money to LADWP. And so when I hear things like this, it's very eye-opening because for me, I feel like I'm just going through the mechanics of being an adult, which is having bills. You pay a company, they provide you a service. But it's so much deeper than that, right? Yes. And I, you know, tell people who are living in Tobangar or so-called Los Angeles, because that city also sprung up around the Tongva people who are from there, who are the first people of Tovangar, our so-called Los Angeles, that when you're taking a shower or you're getting water from your faucet, think of Paiute, because that water's being stolen from from our community, from our people. Wow. So, you know, it might be a nice thing to be in the practice when you're in, in the shower and you're washing your hair to thank that water. Yeah. And to know where it's coming from and what it's doing to the community where it's being stolen from. Oh my gosh. I mean, you, I hate to say it, but you make me not even want to run the water right now. And I definitely need to take a shower. <laughs> Because I went hiking before this interview. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> and so I- I've learned, you know, two things right now about the history of the water source in the city that I live in and also the name. Can you say that one more time for Los Angeles? Tovangar. Tovangar. And that's what I'm going to tell people from now on when they say, oh, where do you live, Kelly? I live in Tovangar. That's beautiful. Yeah, there's a whole wonderful community there. And I used to have this weird relationship with Los Angeles. I did not like. Los Angeles because of where I come from. But I actually walked from Silmar to Long Beach. What? Yeah, with a group called Walking Water. And we followed our water that comes in from Payahunaru all the way to where it is dumped in the ocean. And we followed our water. And so I got to walk and go through Tovangar and follow our water. And you know, there was one point when we're, we were coming down from tree people and we're in this really rich neighborhood. Oh, I know exactly where it is. I hike over there. Yeah, I've hiked there too. And we were coming down from this place and there are really nice houses. And the water was flowing from their driveways and just going into the gutter. And I remember just crying. Oh my. Because seeing how our water was being treated and seeing how it was just flowing into the gutters and these big, beautiful houses with green lawns and trees and all of these things when 
you know, our communities don't look like that. Uh. And it was really hurtful to see that. But I met a Tongva woman, my sis, Anne-Marie, I met a Tongva woman and she made me change the whole way that I thought about Tovangar, that I thought about Los Angeles. And I realized that this city sprung up around this indigenous community there. And I do not hate Los Angeles. What I don't like is Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. That was a really eye-opening experience for me. We hiked from Silmar to Long Beach and we stayed in public parks and Yeah, it was rugged, but it was quite an experience. First of all, just to drive from Silmar to Long Beach, um, you're going to be in traffic for like eight hours, for those of you who don't know. I mean, it's that bad. And so I cannot imagine walking from Silmar to Long Beach. I mean, how many miles is that? One way. I think it was 93 miles or something like that. I'm not sure. It was was a good amount. Jolie, girl... <laughs> you are wilding. 93 mile hike, but I'll say this, I understand the purpose and the importance of it for you and for your community. And to be honest with you, it should be important not just for you and your community. It should be important for all of us. And you're making me think about the way I visit and traverse the lands that I do just in this brief conversation. And so, wow, this is very, very, very eye-opening to say the least. Yeah. And I mean, there's another thing that I'd like to bring up as well is, is our whole notion of wilderness, right? We need to understand that indigenous people have always been a part of this land. We've shaped. And, you know, when John Muir first entered so-called Yosemite, he saw these open meadows and he saw such biodiversity but he didn't realize at the time that the Awanichi or the Miwok people, they were the ones who were tending that land. And they were the ones who created those open meadows and all of that biodiversity. Mm. So when we think of wilderness, you know, we need to understand that that's a manufactured idea that wilderness doesn't exist because indigenous people have always been interacting and connecting with and shaping the land. You know, nowhere is the middle of nowhere because as Indigenous people, we lived and thrived on all of these lands. Indeed. Indeed. It's really important that, you know, when you start seeing the lands that you're traveling through in territories and you start envisioning them as Indigenous territories and you do your research and you find out who the Indigenous people of those places are, that you try to respect those people. And also you can do things like, do they have a tribal gas station? Is there a tribal grocery store? Is there a cultural center? Is there a place where I can support the indigenous people of this land just by getting gas and snacks? Mm -hmm. So those are other ways when you're thinking of, you know, start thinking of places as indigenous territories. Absolutely. Speaking of your experience with hiking, can you take us through what a typical Indigenous woman hike is like? Yes, I can. So I started Indigenous Women Hike in 2017, and it was originally started as, you know, I was going to hike the Numupoyo, which means the People's Road. And that's what we call the so-called John Muir Trail. 
And Numu is what we call ourselves, which means the people, and Poyo means road. So it's really the people's road. It's not the John Muir Trail. And so originally I was going to start off doing this hike all on my own. I believe it's 200 miles. And I started putting up these videos on my social media of me going out hiking. And I would share with people how I felt on that hike, how hard it was, or if I had a really good hike, or if I was discouraged because it was really difficult. And I would just kind of share exactly what it felt like for me. And then other women wanted to join. And I felt like, well, I can't say no. These other women want to come with me. So let's do this. And that's how kind of Indigenous Women Hike started. So it depends on how many women we have on the very first hike, which was in August of 2018, we had seven women, but only two of us did the whole trail, uh, which was myself and my sister, Autumn Harry. And, you know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. You have to be ready to hike anywhere from eight to 12 miles every day. And so, you know, we asked our hikers to start getting ready. You know, this is going to be hard, but that's part of the ceremony as well, because we look at this as a ceremony. Because of colonialism, a lot of our ceremonies, our language, I don't like to say that they've been lost. We just need to remember them. Mm. So to me, this is a new ceremony for us. And part of ceremony is that it's going to be hard and it's going to test you. And that's kind of what it's all about. So we ask that our women prepare and be ready to hike so many miles a day. And we were on the trail, I believe, the first year for 22 days. And that's like, you don't have showers, you don't have regular toilets, you don't have any of these things that we take for granted every day. So it's just, you know, we have to be prepared for this. And sometimes they're first time hikers where they've never done an overnight trip. Autumn Harry, her first overnight trip lasted for 22 days. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. And, And part of it is too, is like, we need to be able to lean on each other. And sometimes that does get really hard when you have seven really strong indigenous women together, <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah. how do we do this and not get on each other's last nerve? <laughs> but we made it. And it was, I can tell you, like, after coming down from Tumangaya, which is also known as Mount Whitney, Tumangaya means very old man in Shoshone. And that's the highest mountain peak in the lower 48. And that's where we ended our journey. After 22 days, just being like, we did it. <laughs> like, uh-huh. so hard. And we did it. So, I mean, it takes a lot of preparation. I mean, not only with physically getting ready, mentally preparing, there's a lot of prayer involved. And there's food preparation, you know, and also one of the barriers for a lot of people to accessing the outdoors is the cost of gear. Oh, man. That's why I also created the outdoor gear library that we have here in Payahunaru that services the whole community, not just Indigenous people, but non-Indigenous people as well. And it's free gear rentals. So basically, you are saying, listen, you don't need all of the gear, not only to survive, but to experience and enjoy. 
I have to agree. I know that gear is expensive. I have lots of it. You can look at a jacket and you're like 200 bucks for some down feathers. Like, okay. And that is a huge barrier. And so when I talk to people about experiencing the great outdoors, you know, the cost of gear is something that often comes up. And so I'll be honest, I say, hey guys, Walmart has a really good line that's really affordable. And I've used some of their stuff just to see how it performs. Pretty comparable. And and that's just the truth. I'm not going to lie. I love North Face. I love Patagonia. I love these brands, right? Mm-hmm. But I also can afford them, right? And so for those who cannot, I don't want you to not think that you can connect with nature because you are missing these name brands. Yeah. Don't ever let not having what you think is the right gear, what your idea of the right gear is, stop you from going out on the land and getting that medicine. But also remember, you know, while we're talking about the land is medicine, that you have to give back to that land too, and that we should have reciprocal relationships with the land that we're getting so much good medicine from. Hiking along some of the same trails that your ancestors traveled is a beautiful experience in itself. I asked Jolie about which trail she found to be the most visually stunning, and if there is anywhere in particular she'd like to hike next. What is the most beautiful trail that you've ever been on? Oh, my goodness. I really hope that if you get to come down this way, if you haven't been there already, the ancient bristle cones. Mm. These are the oldest living trees in the world. And it is such a powerful area. And there's about a four and a half mile hike on so-called Shulman Grove. But these trees are really magnificent and they're really they're old and twisted in these unique ways. And I think the oldest one is almost 5,000 years old. Oh, my. Yes. And what territory is this in? And for uh, us laymans and simpletons, state. (laughs) So this is we in Payahunadu, we're surrounded by two mountain ranges. And one is the so-called Sierra Nevada. which we call the Palmito Toyobi, which means West Mountains. And then the other mountain range is called the White Mountains, which we call Coho Toya. And they're in the White Mountains. And the ancient bristle cones are right there. So it's not too far from here, from where I live. So if you ever get a chance, it, they're so beautiful. It's amazing that these ancient bristle cones, they, you know, they live in this really high place in this terrain that you think, wow, how can trees even grow out of rocks like this? Yeah, yeah. But it, it's so amazing and beautiful. And it's one of my favorite spots to go to and to visit. And I love to just go on this hike on my own and just just walk and, and look at our relatives, look at our bristlecone relatives and just, you know, imagine how my people have interacted and been in those spaces forever. It's really a magical place. What route or trail is on your hiking bucket list? Oh, wow. I mean, there are so many places here in Payahunaru and our mountains here that we, that I haven't seen, that I haven't been to, but there's places all over the world. But when we're, we're talking about traveling, right, I have this idea in my mind, you know, about ethical travel and can we even really travel to other communities you know like how how do we do that but i i spent some time in nepal a few years ago and i would love to do more hiking there 
I mean, not Everest or anything, but um, I would just like to do more hiking in Nepal. It's very beautiful there, but there's also still so many trails that I haven't been on in my own homelands. Let me tell you something. So first of all, your fire on your um on your Instagram. I'm like, she she's going off right now. Yeah, yeah. That's something that's really important to say that I I hold a certain amount of privilege because I am a light-skinned native woman. You know, is just important for me to address. And also being a fat woman is also part of my identity too. And being out on the trail where the majority of the time I am the fattest woman on the trail. And so also that's really important, especially like in my community and in indigenous communities where diabetes is so prevalent in our community. And I think that a lot of our, our youth or our people don't see themselves as outdoorsy people because maybe they are bigger or fat or whatever. So it's important for them to see another fat indigenous woman out on the land connecting with the land. So that's part of my identity as well. Jolie, thank you so much for your time. This was truly, truly eye-opening for me. And I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, I call myself an explorer, but you're making me question that word. And that's something that I definitely want to put some thought into. And had I not had this conversation with you, um, it's just something that honestly might have not crossed my mind because that seems to be one of the most used words to describe the way I traverse this land. And I just want to remember to be respectful of it. So thank you. Thanks so much to Jolie Varela for sharing her adventures with us. You can find Indigenous Women Hike on Instagram at Indigenous Women Hike. That's all for this episode of Let's Go Together, a podcast by Travel and Leisure. I'm your host, Kelly Edwards. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Jamila Zaral-Williams, Lena Beck-Sillison, and thank you to our digital executive editor, Deanne Kazurski at Travel and Leisure. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag, and you can find me, your host, Kelly, at Kelly Set Go. And that's Kelly with three E's.